B-Side content represents the opinions of the host and his guests. We acknowledge that some subjects may be sensitive in nature and not suitable for everyone. B-Side content is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical or mental health advice. And if you do need physical or mental health guidance, please consult a licensed healthcare professional. Hello, this is Brian with The B-Side, a podcast about dad grief, what it teaches us, and how it can make us better. Hey, this is Brian. Thanks again for taking a little time with me. Today's podcast talks about how many of the relationships have have changed and and many many have come and gone since uh, losing my daughter. I uh, I live in Arizona, and I think uh, Arizona is really a beautiful state. I, I live in the desert area down in the Phoenix uh, metro area, and it's it's a desert down here. It's a little ugly. It's uh, it, it, crazy heat in the summertime, and it's not very enjoyable. But um, I really love the northern part of the state where you have elevations from like 7,000 feet on up to 11,000, um, you know, if you're up on the ski slopes. And, uh, I mean, I really love it up there. So my wife and I often take a lot of, as as many trips as possible. We always head up North and we love it in the summer to cool off, but then we also love it in the winter time to do a little snowboarding and, and just, you know, to be in a four season environment and there's a cool little college town up there. And, um, it's just a place that we feel a lot of connection to. I mean, we went to college up there and, uh, it's just a place we'd love to escape to. When we do head up there, oftentimes we'll sit in uh, one of those like secondhand bookstores and we'll just read things and find find books. And inevitably, we we end up buying we each end up buying one. So we were doing that uh, here recently, and I picked up a copy of uh, the complete stories of Truman Capote. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm a big fan of his, and um, this is not, you know, some sort of affiliate link situation that you'll see at the bottom, uh, you know, in, in the podcast descriptions, nothing like that. But the, this book caught my eye, and, um, you know, I, I'd read some things from him in the past, um, and, and one of the things I always loved about him is that he just has these very short, very visual sentences. And, you know, his, his stories in many ways, I think you just have to give them that fictional license. I think in, in modern society today, if we read them, you know, some of the decisions of the characters and things like that, you're, you're sort of like, this is kind of absurd and stupid, but, um, you know, if you just give them that fictional license and you let, you know, I think the beauty of the writing ring through is it, there's some real fun stories to read through here. And uh, so I picked up this copy and there, I came across this story I was reading recently from the collection. It was, the name of it was Miriam and it was from 1945. And the storyline basically is about, it's about a widow. She recently lost her husband and one day she decided to go see a film. And, uh, you know, back then, obviously, in the pre-movie um, ticket app buying world, right, she was standing in line uh, to purchase a movie ticket. And she spotted a teenage girl who was kind of standing off to the side there. And she decided to buy her a ticket and see the film with her. And uh, I won't give the story away, but sort of the long and short of it is that she invites this this stranger into her life. And um, it, it, it takes this almost kind of bizarre, I would almost say Stephen King type of turn where this, this uh, you know, teenage character 
has a certain darkness to her and sort of overtakes this widow's life a little bit. And um, it, it kind of has a little bit of a weird darkness and eeriness to it, but uh, an interesting story nonetheless. And um, if you want to read it, you can, it's not very long, but, uh, but it's made me think about relationships for grieving parents and how my relationships changed so much after losing my daughter. And I don't know if it was just that this story made me think about how I invite people into my life and how I don't invite some other people in my life. And then now it, with losing a child, I I think I just have a different standard for the type of people I'll have in my life than, you know, I had in the past and, and how much it's really shifted. And so I guess just reading about this character who, uh, maybe was in this state of somewhat of a, I don't know if it's like a, a loneliness or desperation and wanted to, you know, be helpful to someone ended up sort of inviting this catastrophe into her life. But I think this can also happen in, in the relationships we choose to cultivate after we lose a child. And so um, it made me think a little bit of the, this, I guess the criteria that I've ended up sort of putting into place when I judge relationships and whether I really want them in my life. And, uh, so I'll share some of those thoughts on that because I think they're a little bit unconventional where one of the things I've really had to realize is that many of the thoughts about how I should do a relationship or how I should or shouldn't allow a relationship into my life have tr- have changed tremendously. And grief has had a massive impact on that. And I believe it's it's a very good thing, even though that some of the decisions I've made, I know a lot of people around me may question and, and, and I'm really okay with that. So this got me to thinking a little bit about, so what are the standards now that I have for friendships and relationships and and how have they changed? And it's not like my wife and I sat down one day and just said, Hey, you know, now that we're into this grief thing, you know, the, the new criteria are dot, dot, dot. No, it wasn't that at all. But I did realize that over time, the standards had definitely shifted and the ability to adhere to those standards really came into play. And it it was a really good thing. And now I have far fewer friends and connections, I believe, than I did uh, in the past, but they are of a greater quality and I really appreciate them a lot more. And when I started trying to kind of create almost like a list of like, okay, so what do I look for in relationships now? And and why do I choose these people and no longer choose these other people? It really boiled. I, I ended up writing down several things and then I ended up realizing, you know what? It boils down to one thing. There really only is one criterion and it takes maybe a couple sentences to explain it. It boils down to this is the person decent? And I define decency through a few key traits that I may observe, and some of them may be subtle. When I'm in a conversation with somebody, I look for reciprocity. Uh, The surface level of that is simply if I ask them about their life and they talk about it, do they return that? Do they ask me about mine? And do they engage? If they do, if I tell them about something, do they ask a follow-up question and, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I don't understand that, right? Uh, You know, tell me more. 
because that's something I do for other people. And it helps me a lot to kind of keep conversations going. And well, I think that these exchanges go far beyond the surface of being polite and courteous to one another. And I think they have a more impactful uh, presence in my ability to like discern and really make good decisions about relationships I want in my life and and don't want. Um, if someone is talking to me and it, you know they be, they come across as completely self absorbed and they're just talking about their stuff all the time, I can actually forgive that when I've just met them and I, I will give people a lot of grace and space and say, okay, well, I'm just going to kind of listen out a little, listen to them a little bit, and you know maybe they're just in a space right now and they they don't want to you know reciprocate and 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 all that and that's fine, right? But after losing my child, you know, and then a little bit of time pass, passing and then, you know, going through the, the sort of grieving experience, you know, I'm able to actually size these things up in a different way. And especially with people that I have had a lot of experience with, and that can be, you know, old friends and acquaintances, longtime friends and acquaintances, as well as family members. And I have approached all of my relationships a little differently, but through this lens of sort of reciprocity. Do they give a shit about me? Do I give a shit about them, right? And it doesn't have to be a deep give a shit. To me, it's like a respectful give a shit, okay? Um, If I'm doing something that you maybe don't agree with or you don't understand, do you give me the respect of not assuming too much and simply asking questions for further clarification? I think those are extremely important qualities in any human being. And they're qualities that I demand of friends, right? I, I don't believe that we need to all agree on everything and all have the same values and all that stuff. I think that borders, you know, too many of those people in a room can be a cult, right? I've, I've, I'm not threatened by people seeing things differently. What I'm bothered by are people who just see their view and they view a relationship with me as me being in the room listening to their shit, okay? And that that's the one-way street that all fucking relationships should be, and that I should sit there and tolerate it. Well, I'm going to be a little candid here and, and perhaps a little bit grim here, okay? Now, after I've lost my child, listen, you're talking to a guy who has watched his daughter choke out her last breaths, Okay. And what that does to a person like me, okay, is that it shapes my priorities really well. When you see that and you go through something like that, not that I, hey, listen, everybody's got pain. I'm not the only person in the world who, who has experienced pain. I'm not alone in this. I'm not saying my pain is greater than anybody else's, but I will tell you, going through that experience clarifies a lot of things for me. And it the biggest clarifier is that what is really important and what isn't. And listening to other people's shit who don't give a shit about anything that I maybe think or say is a complete fucking waste of my time. I don't care if I'm related to this person or if they're a longtime friend or someone I've just met yesterday. If you fall in that category, I don't really have time for you, and I have no desire to keep you in my life. Now, you can see where this is 
probably going to an area of my life that has produced some tension that I've grown very comfortable with. There, quite frankly, there are family members that I just don't talk to anymore, or my my engagement with them is is minimal. Okay, because even though they are family members, they didn't check these boxes for me. And I realized that their presence in my life, and, and I'm sort of speaking for my, my family, I think we've, we've all, the three of us have kind of made this collective decision in a way, their presence in our life was not constructive. It was not anything that yielded any kind of mutual benefit for us and for, for them. It they, we basically made the decision to just kind of pull back. And, you know, through family grapevines and family gossip mills, you know, word has gotten back to us, you know, so-and-so is pissed off. You don't call them anymore. So-and-so thinks you're being whatever, you know, it's been all these years, you know, you should be this and that. And the word gets back to us. We know what people are thinking and saying because families have these dynamics, these little you know, family communication avenues and word gets around, right? And it has been very refreshing to not allow any of that to mean anything. You know, we've been confronted on some on some levels too, where people have said, oh, that's family, you need to do this and that. Um, well, actually, no. Um, if there is a family member who demands something of me that is purely selfish, that wants to either tell me how to grieve, wants to just sit around and talk about everything that they think and believe and not care to even ask about how I'm doing. And, or maybe if they do, they just do it because they kind of feel like they need to, and then they don't really fucking care and they don't respond. Um, You know, all these, they don't do that that reciprocity thing that I mentioned earlier, they're not worth my time. They're, they tend to be an energy suck, and I don't welcome them in my life. And as I said, some people have kind of given me, you know, a, a little bit of a hard time with that because I, I they say I should accept them as family and this and that. I do accept them. They, they're fine. I don't like spit on them if I see them at a holiday gathering or anything like that, but I'm not going out of my way to call them. And I know that... I am not going to be making an effort to have them in my life, as cruel as that may sound to some. Um, I just, it doesn't work anymore. And them being family is just not enough of a justification to allow their toxicity into my life. You know, there is that statement that, uh, you know, we don't choose our family. Um, Perhaps as a child, and you, where you rely on these older figures in your life to help you to start to create you, right? That's, that is definitely the case. You don't choose your family. Um, but as you become an adult and you have experiences and you choose to learn from them, uh, I, 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 I beg to differ. You absolutely do choose your family. And the beauty is that you may find that some of the people you choose are, you know, obviously friends and, you know, people who were strangers at one time, but you realize that there's a connection there that's really worth keeping. They give a shit and you give a shit back and you want what's best for one another. You may talk to each other once a week. You may not talk to each other for a couple of years, but you know how to pick up where you left off. You know that 
there is care there. You know that there is some sense of just mutual give and take and all that. And I do say this again, this has nothing to do with just having the same beliefs and just having the same views on certain things. And in the world of grief as well, I think a lot of times we can trick ourselves into thinking that we need to only be around people who get our journey. I think that's too tall of an ask, personally. I think that it is unrealistic to think that others will understand this who have not gone through it. And if that were to be a criterion for friendship, I just don't think I'd have any friends. I, for me personally, that's just how I see that that piece of it. I, uh, other people getting it, that uh, that has nothing to do with me choosing friends. It boils down to that simple courtesy because the the raw truth of somebody expressing to me that give a shittedness right back, you know, like, yes, I do give a shit. I'm going to think to ask. I'm going to give you that respect and courtesy to to ask about something or to ask for, for more information and to not just assume and wander to some silly conclusion about something I don't quite understand. Like that, I like that in people. I respect that in any human being. And again, it could just be a stranger I just met or something, someone I've known for a long time. Um, I don't need our beliefs and views to be identical. That, that I just don't need that at all. I need that simple exchange. And, and when I was able to identify what I really valued in a relationship, there was really only one task, and that was to ask myself, Brian, do you have the balls to act on this? Do you have the guts to say, you know what? Out with the old, in with the new, or out with the crappy, in with the good. And I think we all face this, every human being, whether you're, even whether you're a griever or not. Do I dare to, you know, I have that gut feeling about something that doesn't feel right and something that really does feel right. Do I have the guts to act on it? And I realized that over time, that's really what this all came down to. It wasn't just about getting rid of the crappy players. It was, it was finding the good ones as well. And one of the things I discovered was that some of this comes back to obviously my background and and really even how I approach work, life, and family and relationships. It all came down to another little thing or principle, I'll call it. Um, And it's tied to actually my work ethic. Um, I was raised, my parents were Eastern European immigrants or are Eastern European immigrants, I should say. Um, But, and they, you know, they, they escaped communism uh, to give me a better life, my, my brother and I a better life. And so I always have this deep respect for them for, for taking that risk. And, um, you know, growing up around them, super hardworking people. I mean, they instilled this, this like, you know, I was born in Chicago and I always say like, it's that, it's that killer Midwestern work ethic, you know, just, uh, you know, they taught me how to just like bust my ass and grind in the working world and just get stuff done. And I have so much respect for them for that and so much appreciation but I realized this is also sort of my Achilles heel in many ways, because if you're a hard worker and you are always overachieving and you are always sort of striving for that perfection, you know, whether 
I guess that we'll leave it as perfection, but you know, you're always striving to get it right and do it right. One of the things over time I've had to realize is that certain people, if they know you're going to bust ass, they will fuck you and they may not do it consciously. um, But if the boss knows you're a grinder and you can work you can get a lot more done than the guy next to you. It's the compliment and the curse that they will keep coming back to you and they will keep overfilling your plate. And the problem is, as a hardworking guy, I will keep delivering. That's, that's my biggest thing. I will keep exceeding expectations. Now, I know you're probably sitting there thinking like, okay, why the hell did you just veer off into this like work ethic conversation? Like, you know, uh, you've lost me, whatever. No, there, there's there's a real purpose to it here. And just uh, deal with me for a sec. That whole thinking of needing to always get it right with work, always whatever, bust ass and whatever it is, right? That also lends itself to the thinking of how I should handle relationships too. It also lends itself to the thinking of like, hmm, I should accept this person in my life. You know, I I should let people be who they are and just accept that, you know, some people are just going to shit on me because, you know what? I mean, I just keep taking on more work. People, you know, shit on me. Hey, you know... Uh, you know, I'm going to have these crazy expectations of you and you're going to always meet it. Well, the expectation of people just being shitty to me and then me just taking it, I think that kind of grew out of that work ethic in a way. I should just sit there and tolerate people who will say, you know, insulting, nasty, misogynistic crap about women, yet I'm trying to raise a daughter. Oh, and then she dies. Like, I should really sit here and tolerate just low-level bullshit from people. And, you know, they should just be able to say insulting crap and I just sit there and take it. Because, you know what, they're family or I've known them for so long and, oh, they're just people who are who they are. Well, they are who they are and guess what? I am who I am too. And so I actually have applied this sort of learning about myself through my grief journey to many areas of my life. I'm more selective with the relationships I choose, and I do it with my work as well. I'm, I say, yeah, I'm a freelance writer, and I, I say no to certain assignments. I, if, if the expectations are unrealistic, I, I, I talk about it up front and just say, listen, if we can't meet these certain demands I have, then we're just, it's not going to be a fit. Um, and I think those are super healthy things. I am much more calm in my interactions and in my life. And I think that I can go forth with a certain level of honesty that I didn't have in the past. I'm honest with myself about what I expect of myself as well as others. I give people the courtesy of being themselves. I'm not judging people for being different or for not getting my grief journey and all that crap. I I don't do those things. I'm pretty damn, I'm a pretty good open slate when I meet people. And that is really, I think, an act of courtesy and love that I, I appreciate 
or I enjoy giving to others. Nobody pisses me off with one crappy interaction or one bad, you know, <laughs> statement or just one, you know, narcissistic moment. It's not that at all. Like, oh my gosh, I just cut all these people all, you know, out of my life. No, I don't do that at all. I have, a, you know, I have great, amazing people in my life. And, but they're here because I've chosen them. And I've had the guts to say, you know what? This is my standard for what a relationship should look like. This feeds me as a person. And and I need it in my life. And if someone meets that standard, I want to keep them around. And if they don't, that's okay too. I don't need to put a lot of energy into not liking or loving them. But I also don't need to put much energy into keeping the relationship going. It's okay. Because I know I get the opportunity to keep myself open to the idea of adding someone else, a new member, if you will, to my new family of relationships. This has been Brian on the B-Side. Thanks for listening today. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.